Today we are talking about the serious business of quoting. You know those little price ranges, plus signs and comparable properties that became mandatory in 2017? Well, there is still a lot of confusion out there about what is acceptable, so we want to get to the bottom of it. We want to know what the rules are and why are there so many numbers flying around about the same property? Quotes, valuations, vendor reserves, they can be the same, but they can also be so different. So let's get to the bottom of it. Welcome to Real Estate Right, where we talk to top experts on how to buy, sell, rent, and invest right. Your hosts are Grant Kennedy and Sue Langeter. Today, we welcome Miriam Sancola, the CEO and multi-award-winning property advocate from Property Mavens, to talk to us about quoting. She is the best-selling author of Property Prosperity, an accredited property investment advisor and sought-after media commentator on the subject of all things property for major newspapers, national radio and television. Welcome, Miriam. Yay! Hi! <laughs> I'm really good. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks great. for coming. Well, uh, yeah, thanks, Miriam. And um, how did you get into the advocacy business originally? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. I mean, in my younger years, I didn't really have any um, upbringing that included financial knowledge uh, in relation to investing or buying property or anything like that. So when I was younger, I went and bought my first property at the age of 24 off on my own. And needless to say, I was susceptible to uh, the real estate agent uh, doing his job at the end of the transaction. And while I did negotiate a little bit off the price, I really didn't understand what I was buying, where there was value in it, if I was overpaying and um, could I have bought better elsewhere. And years later, I learned the hard way that yes, I could have. Instead of a, a one bedroom apartment in St Kilda, I could have nearly bought a um, two bedroom house that needed renovation in Port Melbourne. So I guess over the years, I made a number of mistakes and that was because I was listening to real estate agents um, <clears throat> whose only agenda is to sell property and one of them was a friend of mine I had an amazing property in West St Kilda on um, Canterbury Road and I'd split with my partner and I said to him what should I do and what I really the advice I really needed was look go see a financial planner or an accountant look at your financial position all the rest of it and his response was I'll help you sell it and we'll buy you a fantastic investment property so I stupidly sold a fantastic house on Canterbury Road and bought a silly two-bedroom apartment in um, South Yarra instead and learnt the hard way that I took the wrong advice from the wrong person it cost me substantial amounts of money I would have been better off buying out my ex and um, would have been millions of dollars better off as a result today so I just kind of had a, a career uh, that started me in financial services I ended up selling what they call managed investment real estate or managed investment scheme real estate which you needed uh, yep. financial planning qualification to do yep. and then I ended up in traditional real estate and working in buyer advocacy which um, was absolutely perfect for me because I was very passionate about helping consumers to not make expensive mistakes by taking advice from the wrong people i.e. the selling agent. Makes sense. It does make sense. You're renowned for the 2017 reforms into 
uh, quoting and underquoting and all those sides of things. How uh, how did you get involved with that, Miriam? Well, Grant, <laughs> as you know, I um, did a I suppose a, a business course for one of a better word. I have written a best selling book. I was from an ethical position pretty irritated about the fact that consumers were vulnerable to making mistakes buying property and they were wasting time, effort, and energy because agents were very heavily underquoting property. And it's actually a deceptive and misleading practice. It always has been. But unfortunately, we don't have enough people in consumer affairs to police it, number one. Statistically, the chances of getting caught were really, really small. So if an agent was going to take a gamble on do we underquote and you know, have it work in our favour or do we risk a fine, the chances of that were incredibly slim. And so in 2014, I started a petition to stop underquoting and over the course of a number of years and lots of um, media commentary and radio, television, papers over the course of that time in conjunction with the same thing happening in the state and me having the opportunity to meet with politicians um, and talk about the problems. Finally, uh, some things were done about it, which is really good to see. Yeah. Yeah, I watched it over those three or four years um, pretty closely knowing you and um, you certainly put a you know, fair bit of effort into it and got to the point where changes started to happen. So you must be congratulated for that. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Interesting, interestingly enough, the um, REIV, who <laughs> at the time was managed or the CEO was different to who, who is there now, but they absolutely were constantly denying the fact that it happened in the industry and they eventually realised that laws were going to come in to change it, whether they liked it or not. So they got involved in um, influencing what those laws were going to look like. And unfortunately, the first round of regulations came out, had some weaknesses in it and some loopholes in it and then as at September those regulations have now been updated tightened up substantially and um, there's really very little agents can do in terms of underquoting and what it does it means we now have a transparent market people can attend auctions and, and bid at properties where they've actually got the likelihood of potentially buying rather than what happened in the past where they were being brought into properties where they never would have had a hope in hell um, yeah. but they were being used as fodder to drive the price up and instead of putting time effort energy and money into something they could buy they were wasting time on things they couldn't buy so look I don't think there's anything wrong with having an industry that behaves more ethically um, operates out of more out of integrity and there's transparency with a consumer and it doesn't mean that people still don't have to compete for a price mm. when there are you know supply and demand considerations but at least they've got a better chance in the very beginning of making sure they're focusing on the right property and that's all fair market conditions really anyway so yeah exactly so you know finally we've got some transparency um happening and you know don't know why it couldn't be there in the first place there are always sharks in every industry and and maybe those sharks are going to start retiring because they can't play the games that they always used to get away with but um yeah. there are some fantastic operators in this industry there are some really ethical agents they're professional they're good at what they do they're knowledgeable and now everyone's on the same um playing field because yeah. everyone's now abiding to the same regulations which is great to see yeah, it really only helps the good agents, really. What are the um, current rules regarding price coding in Victoria at the moment? Well, if anyone's interested, they can go on to Consumer Affairs and they can certainly um, 
download, there's an underquoting fact sheet in terms of who the underquoting laws apply to, um, what property sales do the laws apply to, what do agents have to do, um, or what do consumers actually have to do when they sign an authority, um, how to determine whether a property is a residential property, what records do they have to keep, what if the seller doesn't agree with an agent's estimated quote range. So there's a whole lot of information there, but fundamentally, yeah. um, in terms of pricing, property pricing, um, the agent can put forward what they say is an indicative price mm -hmm. and it, it's basically either the selling the seller's asking price the agent's estimated selling price or it's a written offer rejected by the seller because it's too low so fundamentally it can't be less than that so let's say for example the agent um, puts an estimated selling price down of between 500 to 550,000 and the seller has not provided an asking price or there's not been a rejected written offer then the indicative selling price would be um, 500,000 if it's just a single amount or 500 to 550,000 or any what they call a 10% range with lower limit of 500,000 or more. So it does get a little bit complicated, but it's basically a scenario where it's either the agent's estimated price, which the vendor signs off on. Yeah. If the vendor consequently said, well, no, I want 570,000. I don't care that you've appraised it at five to 550. I absolutely will not take less than 570. Mm -hmm. Then the quote range has to be 570 and then add 10% to the top of that. So 570 is the bottom of the range. So um, even or, if even if that is not realistic or... Absolutely, that, yeah, that's right. And this is where vendors have to learn that if they get greedy, yeah. they don't want to take the agent's recommendation and the agent will provide recent comparable sales to support that recommendation. Then it's going to be very easy for a vendor to blow their campaign by having the property or the bottom of the quote range being the price they want because that's that's basically the price or it's the bottom of the quote range plus 10%. Yeah. So this is where um, vendors need to be very careful around what they do. I mean, you can always start too high and then reduce the price, but then you've killed your opportunity in the first week or two of that campaign to attract the buyers that you want. So I would suggest that vendors moving forward absolutely take on board what the agent's estimated selling range is. Technically, they don't have to decide their reserve until the day of the auction, whatever that figure may be. Um, and it's not to say that they may not get it under competition, but if from the very beginning of the campaign, they refuse to accept less than a certain amount and they've indicated that um, to the agent, well, then that's the price that has to be quoted. Fair enough. So sometimes Grant, when Grant and I go to properties to write copy and take photos there's sometimes a valuer doing his report does a property usually get a sworn valuation prior to the property being advertised no not necessarily i mean a sworn valuation is the value of a property at a point in time and a valuer will also do recent comparables and there's often a, a five percent leeway in terms of the quote itself so five percent either side of that figure that the valuer puts down is where the the value could sit or the price could sit so there are different valuations. There's a sales valuation, mm -hmm. which is probably a bull, I'll use the word bullish. Um, it's usually um, sought after or, or ordered by the vendor or themselves. So they might want to, you know, determine a reserve based on using that. It's done by a license or a sworn value, but the vendor may request it as a way of determining a reserve if they wanted to come to a conclusion themselves as to where they feel that should sit. And they may or may not share that information with the selling agent. Other people 
well, such as a buyer might get a valuer to go in and do it, which yeah. again is just a value at a point in time. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't take into account an emotional premium that someone else might be willing to go to on the day of an auction in an emotional state if they particularly want that property. So look, once, only once ever in the last seven years, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of purchases, have I ever um, worked with a client who wanted evaluation. Okay. Now, the property that we missed out on that day went for substantially over the top of the range that the valuer put on it. And that was that emotional premium someone was prepared to pay. And that's just how the market works, you know, regardless of where we might see value or where a valuer might see value, it doesn't mean that people pay over the top on the day. Yeah. Um, You've you've talked about a sworn valuation. How does a market appraisal sit in terms of relation to those two as well? Yes. Yeah. So a market appraisal is is exactly that. So I'm a a real licensed real estate agent. So when I buy property for clients, we'll do our own comparable sales to come up with a range, a price range where we see the value of of a property sitting. And a selling agent will do the same when they're pitching to a vendor and, and giving them an estimated selling range. So we aren't sworn valuers, mm-hmm. um, though some of the um, process is similar, i.e. the comparable sales, mm-hmm. sworn valuers um, are substantially more qualified to write a report, draw a line in the sand, put a price on it with a range, and then someone will pay, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars for that that valuation. So it doesn't mean that licensed real estate agents necessarily always get it right. I mean, one of the great things about this change in legislation that came in at the beginning of September is once upon a time, agents are being cheeky and not using genuinely comparable properties. So for example, if they were selling a house, they might have used a townhouse nearby as a comparable. Mm-hmm. And the difference being the substantially different size land. And so by all means, it's not comparable. Yeah. The new regulations provide that the external construction needs to be similar, the architectural style and layout needs to be similar, the internal floor size and the land size of the property actually needs to be similar, the number of bedrooms and bathrooms and car parks needs to be similar, and if there's any special features like a pool or a tennis court, they need to be similar as well. So now comparables either have to be really accurate, which they weren't in the past, or they might turn around and say, well, we can't find three adequately comparable properties so we're not going to put any comparisons down at all that would be arguable unless it was an incredibly unique property of which there was absolutely nothing similar in the area within two kilometers there's probably no justification to do that and agents do run a risk of playing that game if in fact it is something that i can find comparables on but they're busy telling me they can't yeah um so that's where they run the risk with consumer affairs but that's that's ostensibly the difference between what a sworn valuer does and what a licensed real estate agent does so Karen from Essendon recently bought a property where the price range on the statement of information was a lot more than what was originally quoted. It turned out that the property had been on the market with another agent prior to the new agent who had a more realistic price on it. How come the price range on the advertising and the price range that appears on the statement of information can be different? Well, technically they shouldn't be different. Um, During the course of a campaign, it is possible for people to put offers in over and above the top of the quote range to try and secure the property, say, before auction. In that instance, the agent is obligated to update the quote range within 24 hours and they must also update the statement of information if the seller rejects a written offer. 
because um, that offer is too low, but the price is still higher than the estimated selling price range that's been quoted. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. yeah so they have to move. The they have to change them both. Real estate yeah. agent to constantly update both of those basically yeah. correct yeah yeah and so this is and this is why you know it's a live moving market and this is why it pays to keep a note of um, campaigns as time marches on because the price can change and increase based on those early or, or enthusiastic offers coming in early forcing the the vendor and the agent rather to have to adjust the quote range to reflect those offers having been rejected yeah so essentially the the only reason why the vendor would reject those would be because the agents told them there's a few more buyers available on your property. So let's just see how it goes to auction. And, and they all know now what the new price is and uh, we'll see who we'll, we'll sort out that wheat from the chaff sort of thing. Yeah. So the agent in conjunction with the vendor will update them as to the level of interest in campaign, how many genuine buyers that they think that they've got. Um, you know, if it's patent that there aren't enough buyers and this is an amazing offer, the, the agent's going to talk to the vendor about that and, you know, recommend that they seriously take that offer. Yeah. Um, if the vendor second guesses that advice or, or thinks for no reason other than they want more money, that they're going to reject that and go to auction anyway, well then, yeah, absolutely. The, the statement of information and the quote range has to be adjusted to reflect that. And then what happens on the day will be, you know, determined by who shows up. Yeah. And that could also go in a negative way. It could actually yeah. go, we'll say they originally quoted five to five fifty, knocked back an offer of six hundred and then all of a sudden they've got, you know, five sixty because no one Well that's yeah, that's exactly right. So the new quote range might now be six to six sixty, but yeah. on the day it could still pass in for less than six hundred. Yeah. So there is a risk associated with that. But I'll give you an example. I mean I um went to bid on a, a property a couple of months ago for a client and the one next door, which is identical, sold three months earlier for five hundred and eighty thousand. Mm -hmm. The market had just really started to pick up again. Yeah. This particular property was quoted five eighty to six twenty, which was fair and reasonable because 580 was the minimum the vendor wanted based on what had sold next door three months earlier so yeah. that was not unreasonable yeah. we appraised it um and talked to our client about budgeting 660 for it mm -hmm. and then someone paid 700 on the day which was an insane price but that was competition and that was the market starting to escalate that yeah. reflected 20 percent capital growth in the space of three months but wow. this is what can happen in a competitive market so look you know if we had have gone in with an offer of 620 before the auction the vendor may or may not have taken it and um fundamentally it rolled out on the day and someone paid 700 so that's that's just where the market's at, at the moment. you wouldn't want to be the uh you wouldn't want to be the vendor of the house next door and you definitely would be happy to be the yeah. buyer oh the no well hey if you bought the house next door you'd be thrilled oh definitely <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. Happy it shows you how quickly a market can turn um okay. and particularly if it's what we call an a-grade property these are the ones that attract the most competition and and emotional buyers and they're the ones that rapidly increase in value when the market picks up again they're the first yeah. ones to um, take off in in a market when it turns up and they hold the value better in a downturn market mm. i've just been refinancing our house and oh, for the life of me i had three different valuations done yeah and all coming in lower than what i was thinking it should be yeah and now, <laughs> what you now, wanted yeah <laughs> of course and then, like, now, every, like every owner <laughs> yeah and then i've gone ahead with it and then on, on one of the lower valuations then already mm. now 
with the market sort of picking up. Yeah, picking up, and you know the media starting to spruik it and everything. I'm already getting valuations higher than that. Like, yeah, I would looked into. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yep. frustrating, but it anyway, is frustrating. Just. And look, yeah. that's the difference too with a bank valuation. A bank valuation is always going to be much more conservative than a sales valuation. Yeah. Um, and the reason is the banks can get sued or rather the valuers can get sued by the banks. So they come in as an ultra conservative amount. Whereas a sales valuation done before you put a property on the market is designed to, you know, be um, bullish for want of a better word. Mm. So they're, they're totally different valuations. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Recently, Harry from Glen Waverley went to an auction where the vendor changed their reserve on auction day and the underbidder got really upset with the agent for underquoting, saying he would report him. Harry wants to know who was in the right. Would an agent be liable for underquoting if the vendor changed their reserve on the day? No, look, uh, the vendors have got the absolute right to make what it, their reserve whatever they want it to be. I mean, if at the start of the campaign the agent has come in and said, well, here's the estimated selling price range based on recent comparable sales and the campaign's moved forward on that basis and let's say that very morning a comparable property around the corner has sold for substantially over that quote range, yeah. then there's nothing stopping that vendor with that information saying, well, if that property got X, I want X as well or I want Y. Yeah. So there is no legislation that exists that controls what a vendor can set their reserve as um, at any point in time yeah. or on the day of the auction. So understand that Underquoting has got nothing to do with the uh, the vendor's reserve on the day. They're two different things, and this is why it does cause confusion. Okay. So, therefore, a vendor can't be charged or penalised in any particular way for changing their mind, essentially? No, but the agent can. So, if... If the vendor halfway through the campaign said to the agent, well, you've got it advertised five to 550, I'm not going to accept less than 570, then legally the agent has to update the paperwork, uh, the quote range and the statement of information whether the vendor wants them to or not because it's the agent that's going to get prosecuted, not the vendor. Yeah. So agents are now responsible for making sure that they're quoting accurately based on the instructions that they've been given by the, the vendor. However, yeah. if on that day the vendor said, well, I know I put it down as a minimum of 570, mm. but now I've decided I want it to be 650, there's not a lot the agent can do about that. All they can do is go out, obviously do their best to get that price. If it doesn't get that price, they pass it in and negotiate with the underbidders um, and then see where it goes. You know, vendors can do that, but they run the risk of missing out on a sale and the property being passed in. So they have to understand that there's a consequence to that kind of behaviour as well. Definitely. And in terms of the comparable properties that are put on the statement of information, What's the rules around comparable sales and that kind of thing? Like, do they have to be in a certain time frame of when you're going to sale or? Yeah, they do. So they have to be in a similar location. So, you know, if you're comparing metropolitan Melbourne, a comparable property must be within two kilometres of that property. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that's what determines comparability there. Obviously, I talked about it has to be of a similar standard and condition. So it's internal construction and the building materials used need to be similar. The architectural style and layout, uh, similar floor plan size of the dwelling as well as land size of the property. And this is what wasn't the case in the past. They didn't require the same land size. So they've, they've now made it genuinely comparable. Ideally, similar number of bedrooms, bathrooms, car parking. 
And then they do need to look at recently sold properties. So they want to look at a minimum of three comparable properties as close to the sale date as possible as when this property is going to market. So it's usually no more than six months for comparable properties located within Melbourne and then 18 months for properties located outside of Melbourne. So this is obviously, I'm talking about Victoria, Victorian legislation only. But yeah, that's basically how they need to be considered before they're um, yeah, put down as, as being comparable for the purpose of putting down an estimated selling range. So what's the distance required for rural Victoria? Five kilometres. So for any property for sale outside the Melbourne metropolitan area, a comparable property must be within five kilometres of that property. Okay. okay. And, you know, similar zoning as well. So you want to make sure that you're, you, you know, you're comparing a residential property with a residential property, not a mixed zoned property or anything like that. Yeah. Green wedge or lakefront or whatever. Yeah. And look, you know, you can't compare an off the plan property mm. to a built property under construction. So again, mm. you've, you've got to make sure that that's been taken into consideration as well. And look, this is where the complexity comes for the consumer because mm. people are going out there spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Mm. They're relying on the agent's comparable data. They more than likely don't understand the complexity of what's deemed a comparable property. And more often than not, they've got no idea about allowing an emotional premium. And off they go to put their hand up at auction and they're basically gambling on whether or not they're going to get an outcome. And it's really interesting, you know, people say to me, well, Miriam, why would I pay you to do something I can do myself and it's like well yes technically you can stand there and put your hand up at auction Mm. but you don't have the insight the experience the expertise that I have and that's the 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 benefit that I deliver to someone as a buyer advocate um, to give them the best possible chance of buying that property when statistically there's only ever one buyer and everybody else has come last so so this is where underquoting is complex enough for the industry to understand, let alone the average consumer who may have only ever bought one or two properties in their lifetime versus yeah. professionals such as licensed buyers agents who have done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. So what sort of situation would a statement of information have the comparable properties be left blank? So as I said, if it's genuinely a very unique property whereby they can't find at least three comparables to match it, and that that could be because it's a particularly unique architect that it's designed has designed it. It might be in a suburb where all of the blocks are, let's say, 600 square metres, but this particular block's been subdivided down to 300 square metres. And typically there are no other blocks in the area that are of that size. It could be a whole variety of legitimate reasons. When that happens, sometimes you'll find that vendors or agents might do what they call an expression of interest campaign because they can't put a price on it. They're not sure where the price sits other than a pretty broad range sometimes. So they might um, have an indicative price without comparables and then they ask for people to put their expression of interest forward that way but yeah I would like to think that when there is no apparently no genuine comparables that it's for those reasons but I I have to say I have come across properties for sale where I have a look at the statement of information they're telling me there are no comps and I know that's absolute rubbish because I can easily find comps myself yeah are you allowed to have one or two or or does it have to be three or more uh look I think uh, my understanding it needs to be a minimum of three but I've seen scenarios where and this is the trick if they can't get three this is where my 
most agents will turn around and go, well, we're better off not putting any at all and, and just putting that range, you know. So then it comes down to the consumer and they need to do their own searching for comparables. And again, they need to be fully across what, what is a comparable and what are the components of it. And again, the majority of people aren't, aren't knowledgeable about that. You know, it's, it's, I work in an industry where for decades, selling agents have been dumbing down the process of buying real estate and they've been making it sound like it's really easy and really simple and everyone can do it and all properties double every seven years. And there are a whole lot of myths in the marketplace that has been driven by property developers, spruikers and selling agents yes. to lull consumers into thinking it's easy and let me look after you, I'll help you. Whereas in reality, they only ever work for the vendor. Yeah. And if someone um, gets lulled into the false security of letting the agent guide them and represent them, well, you can absolutely bet your boots that they're probably going to overpay, if not miss out together, if not be used as fodder to just drive the price up. Mm. So, so did you want to ask about the sort of recent events where some people have been underquoting for incentives? Um, oh, yeah. There's a situation recently, I think it was an agent in Croydon who got fined for telling the vendor that the property was worth this much and put an incentive in there. Yeah, the commission. And then look, that's yeah, unethical. Really unethical. Bad practice in the industry. Oh, look, I don't know that it's illegal per se, but it's really bad practice. It certainly breaches code of conduct if you're a member of the REIV. As a vendor advocate, when I work with vendors and we go out and agents pitch to us for business, we always reject any agents that do that. Because my attitude is, well, if you know your job is to sell the property at the absolute most you can get, and no, you shouldn't be getting a bonus over a certain amount because it's your job to do that anyway. So all I would say uh, for vendors if they ever come up against a real estate agent who wants to be remunerated on that basis, run a mile. Because I've known in those instances some agents where they've had relationships with valuers where they have a little quiet chat with them and tell them to go and do a valuation but keep it conservative. So then the chance of them going over that amount is much greater and enables them to earn a lot more money. So, yeah, totally, um, I find that totally unethical and, and don't ever, ever appoint a real estate sales agent on that basis. Yeah, so basically you need to do your own little bit of research first to know what, where your property sits before you take any incentive-based commissions. No, just don't do it at all. Oh, don't do, don't do incentives. No, no, no don't do it yeah. at all. Get a, okay. Honestly, get a, get a vendor advocate. And this, again, yeah. this is where selling is complex yes. because people don't know what they don't know. And this is why I, I never used to, but now I work as a vendor advocate because I was working with so many clients buying and helping them buy. They then wanted help selling and what I absolutely know as a fact as a buyer's advocate having worked with four to five hundred sales agents is there are the good the bad and the ugly and you know what those ugly agents aren't people I want getting in front of my clients yeah. um, and the good agents are the ones who are ethical they don't lie they're transparent they're professional they're respectful they're responsive yeah. they treat buyers with regard they're not arrogant they don't underquote yeah. now if you don't know who those agents are well then find a vendor advocate who does yeah. and those are the people that they should be bringing to the table to pitch for the business and then a good vendors advocate will guide you and help you decide who the best agent is to pick and, and the reasons why. Okay, so we'll now have a little break and come back with some more of Miriam Sankula. So okay. Grant's fun facts, quote them low, watch them go, quote them high, <laughs> watch them die. <laughs> it's a well-known saying in real estate. 
Oh, did you know that by real estate's doing this, it actually helped them build the database of buyers and not really sell your property? Would you say that's fair, Miriam? Well, that's what it used to be, but they can't do that anymore with the um, undercoding regulations. So unfortunately, that was, look, there's a dinosaur, prehistoric kind of agent that has been around for way too long and needs to retire a bit pale and stale and, you know, it's time that they should get out of the business and go play golf. Um, That's a very old school way of thinking and operating and anyone that thinks like that uh, certainly isn't up with the times and doesn't have a lot of integrity. So, um, but yeah, look, Underquoting legislation has come in to stop that. They can't do that anymore. So no longer a fun fact. No, dead, uh, dead I think, I think uh, dead and gone. Let's just put that to dead and gone. Okay. <laughs> Good to hear. All right. Fun fact number two. In Toronto, Canada at the moment, there is a property for sale that has been valued at $1 million. However, the start price is $119,000. What's the catch? You can't step into the property before the auction. You don't know what you're going to buy. It's built like this because it's being repossessed for not paying land taxes. Land taxes, yeah. And the council is reclaiming what is owed, not what the property is worth. So there you go. A million dollar property for potentially... $119,000. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> we, might call, we, we might call that a mortgagee auction otherwise or something similar. Yeah, I think so. But it's it's more, well, it's not the mortgagee, it's more the we, council. We'll have to tax. update. We'll have to update. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. What it ended up, yeah, we'll up going to, with. We'll, we yeah. should, yeah. Going for. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, if you don't pay your um, rates, that's that's what happens that's to what you. Happens. Yeah, because we don't really hear of those sort of sales in Melbourne, do we, where people don't pay their rates? It's They're not really no, as such, are they? No. Right? no. They're a little bit more underground. I think sometimes it's a little bit, you know, not what you know, but who you know. Yeah. Um, when I'm doing comparables, I see some properties and I go, what the hell happened there? How did that sell for so little? And, um, yeah, it usually ends up being something like a scenario like that where it's a mortgagee sale or a council stepped in, something like that. Are they common enough or not Not really? Oh, look, I don't know. Honestly, I'm, I'm so not focused on that particular sector <laughs> yeah. of the market. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck if you can find it, though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Sue's quick quiz. All ready uh-huh. for this? Okay, so what's your favourite Melbourne park? Oh, I have to say Albert Park, um, yeah. particularly the lake. You know, I have always lived around water mm. and um, that's one of the areas I frequent. But I also adore the botanical gardens. You know, you can just go in there and get lost and you can go hunting and they've got a lake and they've got bellbirds and they've just got so much to see and it's such a beautiful environment. So, look, if I had to choose, I'd say the botanical gardens. Yeah, sounds good. So what's better, popcorn or choc tops at the movies? I like them both, but I'd have to say more recently, I tend to go for the Cafe Grande coffee choc top. Choc top? Sounds good. Who's your favourite newsreader? I like ABC Breakfast News. Okay, have you ever backed a Melbourne Cup winner? Oh, you know what? Michelle Payne, I will rue the day that I had a really strong intuitive feeling to put 10 bucks on her. Yeah. And I was so busy sitting there having a drink that I didn't get off my butt and do it. So uh, I, 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 you know, energetically okay. and mentally I backed her, but I didn't yeah. put the money on. So um, it was yeah, I'll put well it. from memory too. Yeah. I think it was 20 odd bucks, something. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was 10 to, 100 to 1. Oh, oh 100 to 1, was it? 
Oh my God, if I had, yeah, if I had to put down 10 bucks, I would have walked away with a thousand. I was was kicking myself. Yeah, she was a hundred to one. Wow. So in my mind, I I backed a winner. I just didn't put money on her. Yeah. Uh, What's your favourite music radio station? So you listen to ABC. Oh, I probably listen to Smooth, actually, just having that on at the office during the day. Yeah. They've got a good variety of music on that. Smooth FM, yep. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Where would you take an overseas visitor when they come to visit Melbourne for the first time? always to the south melbourne market yeah yeah uh-huh. that's, a good one. that's pretty cool yeah and on the colonial tram car restaurant yeah oh yeah yeah i've yeah. done that before actually yeah that's, oh that's so much fun yeah good fun yeah so what's your favorite building in melbourne oh i like a lot of the beautiful um gothic style architecture you know the old mm-hmm. bank buildings and so forth i think it's the anz in collins street yeah that's got a gothic yeah, that's one of the beautiful gothic gothic buildings that I adore. You can actually just go in there and look at the roof and look at the building and, yeah, it's stunning. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that one. Okay, so do you ever attend the Melbourne Comedy Festival? I do. If I can get gala tickets, I will always attend. So it's a bit of a lottery um, to get the tickets, but absolutely it's hilarious. Yeah, I can imagine. The gala would be pretty good. Yeah, the gala would be good. Yeah, you've actually answered this question. I was going to ask, how old were you when you bought your first home? But you said 24, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yep, little apartment in St Kilda, the yeah. garage. Yeah, and you know what? Get in early. Oh, and you know what? At the time, I mean, gosh, this is how long ago it was. It was like $112,000. Oh, nice. And maybe I paid, I think that included me paying an extra ten grand for the garage. And eventually I, I went overseas and worked for seven years and I think I rented the apartment out for something silly like, I can't remember, 150 a week, but I was getting 50 or 70 a week for the garage. So that garage was very valuable in St Kilda at the time and I shudder to think what it's worth now. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the last question is, what's your favourite town in country Victoria? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I have to say I quite like Bright in and around there, particularly in autumn. Uh, You know, you've got the opportunity to find some, you know, really interesting purveyors of food and wine and, yeah, it's just lovely little cafes and I just love driving around that area in autumn because the leaves and the trees are just stunning. Yeah, pretty. Uh, Mildura misses out again. Mildura misses out. (laughs) Too far away. (laughs) Too far away. (laughs) Too long a drive. (laughs) I've got this. I've got this zone, and like I'll go an hour and a half out of the CBD, and that's as far as I'm prepared to travel. It's a lot lot further than an hour and a half. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. But at least you know, if you can go for two or three or four nights, it's worthwhile. And I have to say, I have a bit of an aversion to driving because I lived and worked in WA for a a long time, and I used to have to commute between Perth and Margaret River, which is three and a half three to three and a half hours each way. Yeah. So my tolerance for driving has um, declined somewhat as a result of doing that for a number of years. Yeah. Mm. Fair enough. <laughs> so, Miriam, do you have any special offers that you'd like to offer our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I do, as I said, I do buyer and vendor advocacy. So it's all about working for the consumer and protecting the consumer when they're buying and selling property. Mm -hmm. Um, So if anyone would like to book a free consultation, they can go to my website, Property Mavens. So that's P-R-O-P-E-R-T-Y-M-A-V for Victor. 
enfinaliess.com.au and they can click on there and request a free consultation. They can ring us at 03 And if anyone's interested in a little bit of um, education, I have my best-selling book, Property Prosperity. They can actually go to my website and buy that in a hard copy format or they can click on the link which will take them to amazon.com.au and they can download it for $3.99. Sounds good. Perfect. Cheaper, cheaper than a cup of coffee, and there's 20 years of knowledge in there. Um, yeah. I will say, <laughs> I will say that um, I do take a financial planning approach to property investing. It's really important when people are buying property that they understand their risk profile. They understand the risk associated with different strategies and different types of property. Uh, that they, um, you know, get their structuring right at the beginning by speaking with financial advisors, and they engage the right experts along the way, not just to help them minimise risk, but to help them maximise return. And so all of that information is in that book. So, um, and it's a really easy read. Sounds good. We would like to thank Miriam Sankula from Property Mavens for clarifying what we all wanted to know about quoting. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you for having me. Next week, we are talking about the different types of titles that you may come across, especially with units and apartments. It's something that you don't even think about when buying a property, but it can make or break a sale. Real Estate Right is a real copyright and We Shoot Buildings production. We would like to thank Podbean for hosting our podcast, Zoom for our video conferencing, Audio Stock for sound effects, and Premium Beat for our theme music. Don't forget, we also have a couple of Miriam's book, Property Prosperity, to give away. If you see our Facebook competition, private message us with the code word MAVENS. That's M-A-V-E-N-S for your chance to win. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, or subscribe on your favourite podcast service. Thanks for listening to Real Estate Right.